Um, our second reading this morning is from Joshua chapter 11, verses 12 through 23. You can find this on page 221 in the Pew Bible and up on the screens. Hear the word of God. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hatzor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made a war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to begin uh, today with a simple question. That is not so simple. To what extent, to what degree do we really and truly trust in the Lord? Now, in the last few weeks, we've been watching Israel's progress in the promised land. It's a bit of a mixed bag, as we've seen. We've noted that they've met with startling success, shocking success, so long as they're moving within the will of God. But we've also seen them uh, engage in catastrophic failure, folly, loss, when they're not moving in the will of God. So the 11th chapter of Joshua picks up a thread that actually begins a couple of chapters back. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And there we see a little blurb, an introduction that indicates a growing rumor of fear of this new group of people, these invaders from Egypt, these Israelites. 
And so the peoples of the land decide that they are going to form an extensive alliance to deal with this outside threat. Remember, we always read the passage from the perspective of the good guys. But it's also important to think about the perspective of the bad guys. So, Israel is a group of invaders. They are the hostile force. They are the unknown people coming into this place, right? This is our town. This is our city. Who are these folk? Well, they're powerful. Let's form an alliance. So, chapter the, the remainder of chapter 9 and then chapter 10 is sort of an aside. It's a small interlude story that deals with a, a group of dissenters, right? You've got these Canaanites. They're all of a single mind, you'd think. But then these, these dreaded Gibeonites. Ah, it's a fine city strong warriors, and yet they decide to break ranks with their fellows and throw in with these newcomers. And so, of course, uh, the rest of uh, chapter 9 covers that story. Chapter 10 involves some of their fellows getting together and trying to make war upon them, right? Because you don't want two of them now. Uh, Gibeonites are very powerful. You strike at the heart if you can and uh, try to deal with them. And, of course, God intervenes. So, now we come to chapter 11, and this expands and returns to that larger coalition. So, I'm going to submit that this is actually Israel's first real military test. Yes, they've sacked some cities. Yes, they've defeated some uh, kings, even a small alliance, as we saw in uh, chapter 10 in battle. But this is something uh, that's fundamentally different. And the passage marks two sort of key differences. The first of these is the number of the enemy host. The passage lists their number as countless, like the sands of the seashore. Uh, you know, you've got a, an alliance of at least 14 groups of people. You know, this was not uncommon in the ancient world, but... That's pretty substantial. Uh, second, interestingly, it notes that evidently, unlike any of Israel's previous military encounters, this encounter involves chariots, horse-drawn chariots. Now, as an aside, I have a friend who's a, a multiple combat decorated army veteran. He's a captain. And somehow we got onto the topic of, I don't know, battlefield tactics or something. And he noted that if you're ever on the field of battle and you should see an M1 Abrams tank coming your way, you have any number of things that you can do, but you really only have three good options. Run. So, that's, that's your three options. Run. In the ancient world, the same could be said of the battle chariot. So you're in a time when weapons technology progresses by slow fits, sputters, long gaps of no kind of development. The chariot represents the crescendo of military technology at that time. It's agile, it's fast, it's physically, psychologically intimidating, it has a ferocious bark, and its bite is far worse than its bark. 
even in its crudest form, it would have represented uh, an, an impressive amalgamation of uh, skill, wealth, labor, uh, technology, and every single unit that would have been built would have been enormously expensive, enormously time-consuming. Uh, this is not something that is just thrown together on the cheap. Uh, modern uh, technicians, historians, and things who have done, um, who do reenactments and who do recreations of these kinds of things are always impressed uh, not only by the, the technology that goes into them, because there's a lot that you don't see in the actual mechanical workings of a chariot, uh, that makes them very impressive even by today's standards, but the amount of labor that goes into them. Um, so the chariot is a sort of development of kind of a, maybe an oxen-pulled war wagon uh, you see in some of the tablets uh, from Ur, very, very long back, uh, that this is kind of an idea that slowly develops. And most people, maybe we think of Egyptian or Roman chariots, uh, but there's a lot of variety in, in them, but either way, uh, you simply do not show up one day and decide you're going to build chariots. Only the most wealthy, only the most advanced nations uh, have the ability to get hold of or purchase or build or design chariots. Uh, and probably to give you some sense of just how sort of exotic and extraordinary these were... Uh, it would have been the ultimate testament to his fame, his wealth, his prestige that Tutankhamun uh, was buried with no less than six chariots. Uh, and this would have been, depending on the dating, around 80 years after this very battle. So that sort of gives us kind of a time frame and a context. Now, uh, as we know from the account of the Red Sea, Israel providentially doesn't have to deal with Egyptian chariots, so that's good, but they do have to deal with Canaanite chariots, uh, and in this region of the world, there's one people group that had taken the development, use of the chariot to a whole new level, and these were the Hittites. Uh, their chariots were the stuff of legend. And they could be used in a number of uh, configurations depending upon need, uh, typically drawn by two horses, which would have been fairly common. Uh, they had not one, nor even two, but three soldier operators. You would have the driver, you would have the primary archer, and then you'd have a third soldier who could carry a large shield to act defensively, uh, either against missiles or melee attacks. He could also carry a sword or a large spear to engage in some good up-close work. Uh, or he could pick up a bow and effectively double the firepower of this war machine. Very impressive. Uh, now, there's some scholarly debate about whether or not the Hittites of the Bible are the same as the Hittites known to modern secular history. Uh, but I find it interesting that the text explicitly notes the, the presence of Hittites in this alliance and the one war machine that it, it tells us about is the horse-drawn chariot. Whatever the case may be in terms of historicity, Hittites or not Hittites, Israel is up against horse-drawn chariots. And either way, that means big trouble. Uh, 
by all measures, by all accounts, by all reason and logic, they should have no chance of survival, let alone victory. Uh, you know, as we read the conquest of the promised land, it's kind of easy to forget that Israel is not some elite group of, you know, heavily trained, ultimate warriors. Um, they are basically an inexperienced army, right? They just came out of uh, slavery under Egypt. I can assure you, the Egyptian army was not taking all the young men of Israel and saying, oh, by the way, in between your brick-making sessions, let's send you over here to a mountain warfare school. Uh, let's get you some drills, you know, with the spear and the bow and all this stuff. These are just amateurs, basically. And it is true they've gained some meaningful experience against the peoples of this land, but they clearly have never faced a host this big, and they have absolutely never faced chariots. So it's a little spooky. I don't know about you. I would probably be a bit spooked. But the good news is that God tells Joshua in no uncertain terms that within 24 hours of seeing this impressive uh, foe arrayed against them, that uh, they will all be handed over to Israel slain. And they will hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, the word of the Lord here warrants close attention. It should always warrant close attention. At first glance, we might be inclined to think of this as just a kind of divine pep talk, right? To give some encouragement, to dispel some fear. Uh, indeed, it's very reminiscent of God's word in chapter 10, verse 8. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. Sounds good. Also puts us in mind of Joshua's victory speech later in that same chapter, after the very victory that God uh, indicates. As his war chiefs place their feet on the necks of the defeated kings, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So we might be inclined to read the passage with a tone of careless nonchalance as if to say, Hey, no worries. It's all good. Tomorrow, not only will you beat up these bullies, you're going to whoop up on their war machines, break them up. It's all good. But I want to submit that the tone here is not simply encouraging, but there's also a severity in it. There's a note of warning. I will deliver them up to you, and you will hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Again, to what extent do we really and truly trust in the Lord? Well, let's not anticipate any longer. Let's find out what happens. So, next day, Israel goes up against this uh, superior force and contrary to all reason, supposition, expectation, prediction, they defeat it entirely. No survivors. And now there is Israel, its enemies utterly destroyed, these magnificent cutting edge weapons of war together with these magnificent highly trained animals to pull them simply there for the taking. Mm-mm. Mm, mm, mm. Now, we know armies throughout history have captured 
used weapons, equipment uh, for their own use. In fact, you know, uh, students of history know that in some cases there have been whole units uh, of soldiers equipped entirely with captured weaponry. Uh, World War II uh, made quite an extensive use of this. But so, you know, it's it's nice and good and dandy to get enemy people's stuff. Uh, you've run low on your own equipment. Your stuff breaks. Your stuff wears out. Hey, here's this dead soldier. I'll take his stuff. Easy, right? Uh, that's nice. But to get possession of technology that is light years past what you have, that's not simply a windfall. That's That's a godsend. And here it is, literally... A godsend. God has actually given this stuff into their hands. So this ragtag upstart nation, this rabble of untrained brawlers, I mean, think of them. They're, they're, they're the lowest of the low in terms of their training, of their equipment. I mean, they're, they're nobodies, basically. And now they're sitting pretty on a stockpile of weapons, technology that would make even a pharaoh blink. This is the best of the best, literally the best of the best. And the word of the Lord, you will hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, if you've been listening so far and wondering what hamstringing is, uh, it is the cutting of the tendon on the back of the rear legs of the horse. As you can imagine, this doesn't do the horse any favors. It's one of the most horrific things you can do to a horse, and certainly in the wild is basically a death sentence for the animal. Uh, It renders them incapable of uh, any kind of work. Most cases renders them incapable of breeding. And as I said, if they're in the wild, they're goners. Uh, Now, Joshua and company obey, but who among us would not have cringed a little, or a lot, perhaps, and bitterly, at the hobbling of these proud animals and the destruction, wasteful destruction, of these incredible engines of war and the technology they represent. Surely, in his unfathomable wisdom, God could see what an incredible boon these chariots would have been to the Israelites. What a a comfort! In time of trouble, and what a strong arm in time of war. Surely God, who sees all times, who in Christ could say when Abraham was, I am. Surely this same God knows all the sayings of the sort. Trust God and lock your doors. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. God helps those who help themselves. And all the rest. And as we think along these lines, suddenly we find ourselves back in the spoil of Jericho with Aachen. Here too, God says, destroy all the good stuff. What a pointless, calamitous waste. With a tithe of the tithe of the wealth of that city, why, a man could take care of his family for a lifetime, a hundred lifetimes. Indeed, surrounded by such opulence, who, who would not look to his own blood, his own family, 
after so much hardship in the wilderness. Indeed, who, who, who could condemn a father just, just wanting to take care of his own to ensure lifetime free from the bitter sting of cold, the cruel grip of want? Righteous Aachen, righteous Aachen, I say, looking out for his own. After all, there is the hard, cold letter of the law, yes, but... But there is also the warm, living spirit of the law. And yes, God has technically said to destroy everything, but surely God would not mind, would understand, would even quietly nod a deep approval for Aachen and his, his unblemished motive. Consider why you or I might be inclined or are inclined to take or do just this one thing? Is it not to secure some strength, some security, some advantage for ourselves and our loved ones? Perhaps we might even bury it under the noble desire to just take care of my family. Who could argue against such noble motive? No. In Aachen's sin, we see not some petty theft, nor even plain disobedience to the word of God. Rather, we see at its core a flat denial of God's ability to sustain, to protect, to ensure the future of Achan and his family. This God of Israel, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who rained plagues on Egypt, who liberated this people, who parted the Red Sea, who fed them and watered them 40 years in a barren waste, is really and truly untrustworthy, evidently. Aachen wanted something more. And in the taking of these things, he transferred his trust to the stuff he took and thus to the self that held that stuff. It is the age-old universal human desire to be God over against God himself. However slightly, however subtly, however self-ignorantly. Sometimes we don't even know that we're doing it. But as Jesus notes, Matthew 6, 24, Luke 16, 13, with respect to mammon, a people who try to serve the one cannot serve the other. Simple fact of the matter is that if God is truly sufficient, then no earthly baubles, however shiny, can provide any kind of an enticement. So, let's return to that moment on the quiet field of unspoiled chariots. The greatest temptation of all, perhaps, in Joshua's victory would have been to argue, to plead every cause under heaven, to keep the stuff, these glorious instruments of war. But in so doing, they would have shifted the ground of Israel's trust from the God, the might of the God of Israel, to the might of the chariots and horses of Israel. Indeed, interestingly, we see in subsequent chapters of Joshua, 17 verses 16 and 18, as well as the first chapter of Judges, Israel does seem to have a very odd preoccupation with, a hang-up with chariots. Uh, despite this victory, you see them constantly fretting over, well, this people group, they, well, they've got iron chariots, as though God hasn't already engaged in this victory. And that concern 
does become a stumbling block to their success in the land. Much as the concern for the strength of the Canaanites, given by the spies initially, became a stumbling block to Israel when they first entered the promised land, or at least were first looking to do this. Well, we can speculate endlessly on the destruction of the chariots, but what are the cruelty and barbarism against the living? One of the biggest criticisms uh, against the Bible is that it contains tremendous violence, frequently depicts wholesale slaughter of not only humans but animals who clearly seem to be just innocent pawns in all these struggles for power. So what about the horses? What about all the innocent people killed in the cities? How could a good God command the doing of such things? Well, let's consider a few possible answers. Concerning the animals, it is indeed true that killing them is not part of the intended created order. Those of you, I'm sorry to say, who like steak, and you like chicken, and you like fish, I know a guy with two thumbs who likes these things, probably going to be disappointed in the new world. Taint how it was made to be. Uh, we were made to eat veggies and leave the critters alone, but, you know... It's also true that the ship of death has already sailed. What of the animals? What of the first animals killed by God to furnish skins for our first parents? What of the millions of animals slaughtered in wars since the beginning of time? What of the millions of completely innocent animals slaughtered under the sacrificial structure instituted by God himself? Indeed, what of the trillions of innocent animals slaughtered since the beginning to fill our bellies day by day? No, I mean, if we stopped slaughtering them, would that help? Each and every animal we don't kill just grows up and lives happily ever after forever, world without end, amen. True? No. Every animal that you and I don't kill dies anyway and slow and ugly, and painful. This is just a sad reality. Death is simply how the world is now. And whatever else we may say about it, it is entirely my fault and your fault. And there is nothing we can do about it. However much we try to pretend that our own sins affect only us, harm only us, or are not harmful at all, we deceive ourselves. The Levitical Code tells us in no uncertain terms that there is no such thing as personal, private sin. Everything and everyone around us pays for it. And in the end, someone has to suffer and die for it. And usually, it ends up being someone who is innocent. Uh, this is the fallen world. God does not spare even the innocent on account of the sinner. We love to think that our privacy is our privacy. It's just me. It's no one else. But of course, this is just a subtle way of wanting to keep it, right? I just want to keep continuing in it. And if this seems offensive, good. Let it be offensive. It is offensive. There is neither safety nor privacy nor solitude in sin. We can't say it enough. Uh, no exceptions for the innocent Everyone suffers. Christ, let us recall, was entirely innocent, yet the Father did not spare his own son uh, from the shadow of death. Well, 
Okay, that's the animals. Fine. What about the people? Well, perhaps the people of the land were indeed excessively wicked. Maybe the risk of their influence on Israel was far too great. We see again and again how alliances that Israel makes with people and with cultures uh, and their tolerance of these evil people and their cultures serves as a distraction and a stumbling block. Solomon, of all people, uh, made alliances with foreign nations and in so doing married, uh, took wives, took concubines, and despite this surpassing wisdom, allowed himself to be carried off into, in his own words, folly, and idolatry, uh, just by virtue of his tolerance. To tolerate an evil thing, however minutely, is to give it our tacit approval. How often do we, in our tolerance of an alliance with the world, give it our silent approval? And by virtue of that internalized approval, find ourselves further and further adrift at sea. We do see in verse 20 that God has deliberately hardened the peoples of that land in order that they might be utterly destroyed. So indeed, it may well be that the people and their cultures were simply irretrievably evil. And the children, we know that secrets don't stay secret. And the children of the vanquished often grow up to avenge their parents, and on and on. But the simple fact of the matter is that we don't know why God has chosen to do this or that, or to command this or that. Why destroy some cities and not other cities? Why take some stuff and not other stuff? Why take some animals and not other animals? We don't know. God commands it, and we either obey or don't obey. So to what extent do we really and truly trust in the Lord? Now, we believe that God is both good and reasonable. God doesn't do things frivolously pointlessly or meaninglessly, regardless of our apprehension of his purposes. But we must never confuse the nature of our relationship. A lack of ability on our part to understand the ways of God does not constitute a lack of proper warrant on God's part. I confess that in my work as an academic, it's a frequent temptation to make sense of the hard texts. Um, the troublesome elements of Scripture. I believe firmly that God is entirely reasonable and good and just and loving. But I also know that a God whose measure I can take is not a God worth having. And from my limited experience as a father, I see that many of my ways are inscrutable and mean and unjust and unloving in the eyes of my little daughter. Dear sweet pumpkin. And that's okay. There are things I know she cannot begin to imagine. There are things that I see that she does not see and should never see. And I would be a monstrous father if I permitted our relationship to be governed according to the terms of her satisfaction. How much more infinitely would our God be monstrous if he allowed our relationship to be governed according to the terms of our understanding? our approval, our satisfaction. Let us rejoice, rather, that we serve a God who is not afraid of our questions, who is not 
perturbed by our curiosity, who is not troubled by our being troubled, whose ways are far beyond our ways, whose love for us knows no measure, and whose stored up good for us cannot be fathomed whatever the darkness of the roads we walk or the pains we endure in this broken world. Friends, let us come to truly and really trust in the Lord God of hosts.